Thanks, guys. Um, before we get into Psalm 97, one really random thing to let you know about is that a few folks here at North Wake, so Noah Joyner, uh, Jen Grady, and myself, are taking a shot at starting a North Wake podcast. Yeah. So particularly uh, since our service times together are uh, a bit shortened these days, there's just conversations and topics that we'd like to go further with as, as a church, but we want to give priority of our hour together on Sundays to the worship of Christ and the teaching of the scripture. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that happen in the life of our church, a lot of wonderful ministries, a lot of wonderful people we'd love you to hear from. So we've started recording a, a few podcast episodes that we'll release and, and see how it goes, just to enable us to have some deeper conversations uh, with our church family here. And especially for those of you, um, I don't know which camera to look at, so I'll, I'll, I'll look here. And Yeah, okay, right there, awesome. And especially for those of you that have been online for a long, long time, we hope these podcasts are a way for you to just hear some of the conversations that we're having around here and invite you into that. So be on the lookout for... Yeah, a Northwake Church podcast in about 10 days or two weeks. If you have suggestions for names for the podcast, we would also receive those at, at some point. We're still making that up. So uh, yeah, told you that was random. Let's pray once more and then we'll go, uh, go to God's word. So uh, with the psalmist in Psalm 86, God, we pray that you would teach us your way, O Lord, so that we would walk in your truth. Give us undivided hearts to fear your name. And so, yes, Father, in a time where uh, the world and even the church is, is so divided, we pray that you would unite our hearts under your word and in the right fear of you. Uh, the things contained here in this chapter are so important for us these days, and yet it takes more than uh, mere words and persuasion to convince us and to believe and feel them to be true. So would you help us? Give us insight and comprehension into these things so that we would have joy so that we would be people who exhibit peace and that we would love you, we would love our neighbors and that we would even love our enemies. Uh, help us to be exemplary in these things as a church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, my wife and I are in the process of buying a minivan. We are entering into minivanhood. Many of you have already taken this plunge, but it's new for us. Uh, nothing against minivans per se. It's just in our 20s, you know, that's not what we saw ourselves driving. Uh, but we found as far as, you know, cars go, man, they, it's just true what they say. They are so practical and economical. And there's those awesome sliding doors that you can kick bad guys out of, like in that movie. That's my rationale for getting a minivan at least. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're getting a minivan. And uh, because we are getting a minivan, I'm trying to find the greatest minivan there is out there, you know, none other than the Swagger Wagon itself, the Toyota Sienna, uh, with decent mileage um, and the right color, of course, for the least possible amount of money. And this is a difficult formula to uh, put together. And so last week I was on the phone uh, with a dealership down in Florida. My in-laws were there test driving a car, a, a van for sale that was there. And I kid you not, I was on the phone with that dealership for like three hours trying to work out a deal. And I'm not really like a hardcore negotiator. I just tell them like, man, here's what I can spend. If that doesn't work for you, it's all good. I'll keep looking. 
Uh, but of course, this is like a challenge to car dealers. You know, well, let us tell you about how amazing of a deal we're really offering you. And it's like, no, really, I, it's, yes, it's amazing, I'm sure. I just can't spend that much. It's good. And well, hold on, let me talk to my manager. You know, let me see what we can do. Well, uh, my manager wants to talk to you. And then my manager's manager wants to talk to you. And I just keep telling him, look, yeah, here's the thing that I can do. Here's what I can spend. If it doesn't work for you, it's okay. I'll still be your friend. Are you okay? You know, and I think they're... Their strategy is if they just keep me on the phone long enough, eventually I'll just give up. You know, throw my hands in the air, take whatever you want, keep the van for all I care, I'll give you my money. Um, So this deal doesn't work out, right? And at the end of it, I'm a little flustered. I'm a little flustered with the dealership for wasting my afternoon, basically, uh, for trying to charge me all all these bogus fees that I didn't think were necessary at all. Flustered that I sent my in-laws, you know, all the way to to Florida on this wild van chase. And so I I go to leave the office to go get some lunch. It's like 3.30 p.m. So it's like, okay, here we go. Let's go get some lunch. And I'm about to leave, and I'm getting ready to call my wife to tell her that I failed her yet again, and I am not yet bringing home this amazing minivan for her. And uh, a friend of mine pulls into the North Wake parking lot. And I hadn't seen this friend in a while, and he's one of our dear brothers here who has suffered a tremendous loss this year. So he pulls in the parking lot, I, I stop my car, I get out of the car, I give him a big hug. Um, we cry together for a minute. We talk together for about a half hour. I go to get back in my car and I go to call my wife about the minivan situation. <laughs> but I had a totally different attitude than what, the one that I walked out of my office with. What made the difference? One word, perspective. I spent some time with someone um, whose life gave me vastly different perspective in that moment. All the things that I was so flustered about just didn't matter anymore. They're stupid. It's just a van. I needed perspective in that moment. And that's one of the reasons that we open the Bible together each week when we're gathered is it helps us get our eyes up off of our immediate experiences and frustrations with the stuff of life. And it grants us real perspective. Uh, This is also one of the reasons that we chose to begin this year in the Psalms because they explicitly ground us in a God-centered perspective and they help us re-engage the world with God at the center. Uh, It can be so easy these days to get wrapped up in and riled up by the events of the past year or even the past weeks that we get flustered, frustrated, set on edge, and we turn inward thinking primarily about how the events of the day affect me and my family and my future and my school and my job and my plans right now. And of course, it's not as if those things are unimportant, but we desperately need them to be put in their proper perspective. Psalm 97 gives us perspective. It begins, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. This first verse is the basic thesis of the whole psalm. God reigns. Be happy. (laughs) The Lord reigns or More literally, the Lord is king. That's the unquestionable reality statement that the rest of this psalm is built upon. 
But of course, these days, as we look around at the world, it doesn't always exactly seem like God is in charge. I mean, even this past week, as I'm studying this passage on Wednesday, I would check in from time to time on the impeachment hearings. You know, it's like you look over on NBC, and it's like, the world is in chaos. And then I turn back to my NIV, New International Version of the Bible, and it says, the Lord reigns. Flip over to CBS, the world is out of control. Back to the CSB, Christian Standard Bible, and it says, the Lord reigns. And there are many times in the Bible even when it seems like the world is spiraling out of control, but turn, you know, turns out God's hand was in it all along. This is the story of Joseph, the life of David, the crucifixion of Jesus even. All those things seemed out of God's hand, but they were not. But this psalm and other passages like it in the Bible, they kind of want to peel back the curtain from behind the present events that we find ourselves in and show us who exactly still sits on the throne of the universe. This psalm is going to push us to see that God is still on his throne. One day, everyone will see this. And this should be a reason for tremendous, long-lasting, deep-seated joy amongst his people. So Psalm 97, it's going to point us back to a moment in time where God's power and might were undeniably on display. Uh, Look at some of the images that this psalm uses. And as we look, see if you can remember another time in the Bible where God is described in in this way. So verse 2 says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So if you know the story of the Exodus, this sounds remarkably like when God comes down on Mount Sinai to kind of first in a grand way show himself and reveal himself and give his law to his people. I'll read a brief section of this from Exodus 19. See if you can pick up on the same kind of phenomena. Uh, Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. This is the place where God revealed himself to the people of Israel. And he used phenomena that are both stunningly beautiful and terrifyingly powerful. And Psalm 97 picks up on those same wonders to describe God. It says in verse 3, and you can picture this with some pictures on the screen to help your imagination, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. I don't know if you've ever been near a wildfire or had like a fire in your backyard and start to get out of control, (laughs) but it's a scary, powerful thing. Even in the 21st century with all of our modern technology, we 
wildfire outpaces us. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. One of my favorite things to do is to watch a lightning storm from a distance, uh, of course. But watch this short clip uh, about the lightning capital of the world where photographers attempt to capture footage of what the locals call the never-ending storm. Just check this out. Lake Maracaibo is a place that not many people have traveled to yet. Such an amazing combination of wildlife, of culture, and of course, this spectacular phenomenon of lightning. This is probably my favorite place on this planet. The Keratumo lightning is like a creature. It's something that appears every night. Actually, just 30 kilometers in that direction is the one point on Earth with most lightning strikes. These lightning strikes reach 250 per square kilometer per year. You have to treat lightning with respect and you have to consider if a storm is far enough away to actually get the shots you want. When the storm starts closing in, you have to decide if you should move in and take shelter. The weather shifts in just half a minute. Generally, the storm is not only the lightning, it's also sometimes hurricane force winds, tornadoes, all sorts of formations of clouds and very heavy rain. One could describe this place turns to hell at night for some people. Of course, it's amazing for me, but there's so much lightning, so much storms around. Lightning is the pure force of nature. It's something that is actually dangerous, but beautiful together. The biggest challenge of shooting lightning is to decide which aperture you're going to use. You have to do your best to actually capture this whole experience at once, but you will never really get the full thing captured. Capturing weather and capturing storms especially is a great feeling because I can share with the world what I'm experiencing as a traveler, as a storm chaser, and as someone who puts himself in, into this danger to get the pictures and the experience I want. It's just something that humanity can't influence and you will feel very, very small when you're in front of a huge storm and that's the best feeling for me that I can possibly get. He's got some good insights power of, and beauty of lightning, something humanity can't influence, makes you feel very small. That's the picture that the psalmist is trying to get across to us. It goes on to say, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of the earth. Um, you know, I love how, how Drew pulled this out for us in his illustration. I mean, if you ever tried to climb a mountain, much less go through one, you know, it takes thousands of pounds of our most powerful explosives to bore tunnels through the mountains. And yet scripture says that they melt like wax before the Lord. And the, the message that this psalm is trying to convey is that this is the one who still reigns, who overwhelms nature and wields the most powerful forces in his hand. This God still sits on his throne. He's still in charge of all things. And he will one day come to the world in this most obvious fashion. And so the psalm concludes, let the earth rejoice. Which might seem a bit surprising, seeing as how all the things he just described are terribly frightening phenomena. You know, is the Lord's reign, when he comes in this way, a good thing for us? It seems really intense. And it is. But if you know this God, not just as God, but as your father, 
it is delightfully so. Uh, my favorite scene in the new Lion King movie, like the CGI animated, the computer animated Lion King movie, is right when, uh, right after Simba and Nala are found by all the hyenas in the elephant graveyard. And they get surrounded by the hyenas. They're pinned down with no escape. And all of a the sudden, there's this mighty roar. And everybody turns around to see none other than the awesome Mufasa coming for his son through this crowd of hyenas. And he's picking one up with his mouth and tossing him to the side. He swipes at another one with, with his paw and just trounces him. He's just wrecking these hyenas. And you see his huge lion muscles bulging as he, as he clears the way to his son. And I love the way that the animators portray Simba's face when he sees his dad. He's obviously relieved because he's you know, rescued, but he also has this this tremble, this awe of the ferocity and strength that his father displays as he comes for his son. When God finally arrives on the scene, whether you will tremble with dread or tremble with joy, all depends on if he is your father or not. God will come one day to put an end to all that's evil in the world and to dispense perfect justice. Verse 2 of the psalm says, Clouds and thick darkness are around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Is this a good thing? At the end of the day, I think we all want a God who is strong and who is just. But is it a good thing for you? It all depends on if you know him, if you know him as father. Uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, who is a well-known British atheist and author, he was once asked what he thought of this idea of an all-powerful, ruling, reigning God. And he said, I think it would be rather awful if it was true. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. Now compare that to the response of the famous uh, British preacher Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this. I love the lightnings. God's thunder is my delight. Men by nature are afraid of the heavens. The superstitious dread the signs in the sky. And even the bravest spirit is sometimes made to tremble when the firmament is ablaze with lightning and the pealing thunder seems to make the vast concave of heaven to tremble and to reverberate. But I always feel ashamed to keep indoors when the thunder shakes the solid earth and the lightnings flash like arrows from the sky. Then God is abroad and I love to walk out in some wide space to look up and mark the opening gates of heaven as the lightning reveals far beyond and enables me to gaze into the unseen. I like to hear my heavenly Father's voice in the thunder. God's display of strength and power elicits very diff two different reactions from people. And in this psalm, both of these reactions are, are displayed. So it says in verse 6, The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. But then there's two contrasting responses to this. Verse 7 says that all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Contrasted with 
verse 8 and 9, which says, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let's look at these two responses and contrast them. The first one. These are those who have not worshipped the true God. It calls them worshippers of images. And it says they're put to shame. They're dismayed. They're distraught. They're mortified even when God in all of his glory and power is revealed. Well, why is that? Well, they've been worshiping the wrong thing. And this verse, verse 7, I think it was, it gives us incredible insight about what it means to worship something. You see the poem use a parallel idea here in the two lines. It says, worshipers of images are put to shame. Those who, and this is identifying what it means to worship images, those who make their boast in worthless idols. So to worship something means to make your boast in it. This is not just like bragging about stuff, although the things that you brag about probably are telling about what you love. But to make your boast in something means to find your greatest sense of significance in something. Something that gives you an ultimate source of meaning and an ultimate sense of worth. What you make your boast in is what really matters to you. Uh, Jeremiah verse 9 spells it out like this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's not bragging about knowing God. (laughs) It's about finding your deepest sense of self-worth and significance and ultimate identity in him. But you hear in that verse all the different things that people tend to make their boast in. You know, you might hear them say, I'm not very smart or wealthy, but I'm athletic and I'm good looking and that's what really matters. Or I might not be very strong or smart, but I've got money and that's what really matters. Of course, very few people would say it so brazenly, but at bottom, that's what matters for them. Strength, wisdom, riches. But the real danger is whatever you make your boast in, strength, wisdom, riches, social prowess, all of that will melt away in importance when God shows up. And the thing that you loved most of all, more than God even, will put you to shame on that day because it won't matter then. It'll be worthless before the presence of a holy God. It was temporary. And so it left you empty-handed and dreading the arrival of a God that you've avoided your whole life. That's one response. But the other response is given in verses 8 and 9. Zion. Zion is another term for Jerusalem. Or you might simply think of it as God's people. God's children. They're glad when they see the day of God's arrival. They're not put to shame or dismayed. They rejoice. As the New Testament puts it, it says, Our hope in God does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And in 1 Peter 2, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, builds their life around him, will not be put to shame. Why will they not be ashamed when God shows up in his power and glory? Because they've built their life on something solid, 
The real thing is here. The one who matters most, the one who is the true love of their life has finally come for them. And so they say in verse nine, for you, O Lord, are most high. You are far exalted above all gods. Not only is he the one true God, he's just far better than anything else you might set your heart upon. And so when God comes in judgment, his children can rejoice because they've built their lives around him. And those who have not are put to shame because they built their lives around things that are worthless in the light of God's final arrival. It's all about perspective. Now, after it lays out these two reactions, this psalm gives us two commands for the people of God. Two commands for his people as we wait for his coming, as we ponder his power. There's two things we're supposed to do in response to that. The first part of the psalm is all about revealing God's glory and power and he's coming in all this might. Now, how do we live in light of that? Verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. Hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Hate evil. Those who love the Lord are to hate evil. If we love him, we must love what he loves and we must hate what he hates. And of course, this means then Christians must first hate the evil in our own hearts most of all. As one person said it, if you hate frogs, you hate frogs most of all when they're in your own clothes. And so even as Christians decry national sins of abortion or racism or violence, we must also abhor our own sins of hypocrisy and slander, pride, gossip, envy, lust. We're called to hate those things, not just tolerate. And yet the Bible knows us so well because it helps us with this. It doesn't just tell us to hate it, it helps us. It knows that hating evil will cost us personally and publicly. And so verse 10 gives tremendous insight into what motivates us towards evil and how how God helps us. Immediately after the psalm commands us to hate evil, it promises that God preserves the lives of his saints. So much of our own failures with sin and evil stem from our attempts to preserve our own life and welfare at any cost. You know, if I don't get this, if I don't get this relationship, this job, this comfort, this particular outcome for myself, I will never be happy. And if I don't look out for number one, who will? And so we compromise with evil in order to preserve our own life and happiness. But the psalm says, no, God preserves the lives of his saints. And then secondly, hating evil may cost us publicly. It may bring us ridicule to stand up for what is right. But the Lord will deliver us from the hand of the wicked. To quote Charles Spurgeon one more time, he writes that he may leave the bodies of his persecuted saints in the hand of the wicked, but not their souls. They are very dear to him and he preserves them safe in his bosom. And if all that's not enough to help us, the next verse makes one more promise to bolster our faith as we hate evil. It says, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Now this is kind of strange imagery here. Uh, Nowhere else in the Bible uses a metaphor like this. It's kind of unique. It says, light is sown for the righteous. 
What does that even mean, right? Um, some Bible translations try to smooth this out a bit, and you'll read and it'll say, light shines on the righteous, or light rises, or light dawns on the righteous. But the original phrasing says that light is sown for the righteous. And the image here is this, light and joy are sown into the righteous like a seed. And the image is that for those who know God, a wonderful thing has happened to you. God plants a seed of joy within you. And slowly, but surely, it grows and grows and grows until it grows you into a person of ever-increasing holiness, wisdom, and joy. I like the way the message paraphrases it. It says, light seeds are planted in the souls of God's people. Not light speed. Light seeds are planted in the souls of God's people. Joy seeds are planted in good heart soil. So in the end, the righteous and only the righteous are truly happy. And so the psalm ends with another command, the second of these two commands. And it just says this, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Since God is in charge, here's the argument of the psalm. Since God is in charge, the righteous can be truly happy. If God is in charge, we as a people can live with joy. Now, of course, all this leads to one critical question. If only the righteous will be happy in the end. If only the righteous will be ready for God's return. If only the righteous have the kind of strength that it requires to not be tossed about by the chaos of the day. How do you know if you're righteous? How do you know if you're one of them? How do you know if you're in the camp of, among, among the righteous? And there's good news for you here. And this is the heart of the Christian faith. And it's that the God of consuming fire and terrifying lightning and mountain melting strength has used all of his strength and taken it upon himself to do whatever is necessary so that even sinful, idol-worshiping people can be made righteous, considered righteous, forgiven, clean, made new, and accepted as his own children. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God, that people who are unrighteous can now be considered righteous so that they will not be dismayed at his coming. Romans chapter four says, to the one who does not work to strive or earn by their own goodness or their moral deeds, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from their works. Blessed, or you might even say, happy. Joy-filled are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joy-filled is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the heart of the Christian faith. That God so deeply longs for you to know him as your father. That he's used all of his considerable strength to rescue you. So that when he comes one day in power for judgment, 
It will be for your rescue and not for your dismay. If you come to Christ, you can be made righteous. And if you have been made righteous, many of us here profess that. Many of us here profess to know God as our Father. If that's true, then we can rejoice in every season because the great king who sits on his throne is our father. And so the chaos of life may steal many things from us, but it does not need to steal our joy. Let's pray. Father, we are often reminded these days of our own weakness and our frailty. So would you remind us through through these scriptures that we've looked at today, remind us of your strength and help us to be the kind of people who have your strength and love in the forefront of our mind each day so that we could be the rare breed of people these days whose lives, whose mouths are filled with joy so that we can then point others to the source of our joy, our good and strong King, who is none other than our Father. Would you help us to see these things again today afresh and to live in light of them with perspective. Give us grace for these things we pray. In Christ's name, amen.